Last week, Pastor Joel laid out several of the classic arguments for why the God of historic Christian theism is the best explanation for the existence of life. This week, I get to address one of the greatest challenges to that argument, and that is the question of why is there evil and suffering? Now, admittedly, I have to say from the outset, there is no possible way that one single sermon can properly address this subject. You'll notice at the bottom of your bulletin where you take notes today that, um, and we've been doing this throughout the series, that there are some additional resources, including uh, last year I actually published a book on this subject um, that covers, it's an accessible overview of the past 2,000 years of Christian efforts to try to address this challenge, so you can check that out. There's a couple other books recommended there. Pastor Joel mentioned this last week, but there's been this story of, in our more post-Christian West, a story that our culture has largely come to believe that tells us that when you strip reality all the way down to the studs, that what you're left with is nothing but mindless matter, randomness, chance, chaos, And those who see the world this way don't see order and goodness behind it all, but they see randomness, mindlessness, they see chaos. And part of the reason why many people have come to that place is because of the problem of evil and suffering. And they feel as if that challenge has pushed them into believing that story. I'm old enough to remember, as many of you are, I I remember... uh, It was actually like my first month on campus, uh, my freshman year of college, watching on television as the World Trade Center buildings collapsed on live TV. Did anybody else see that on live TV? Were you watching that live? How could an all-good, an all-powerful God let that happen? Just a few years later after that, a tsunami devastated Southeast Asia. 500,000 people lost their lives. You know, when Christians speak of seeing God's order in creation, what about those events? Where are you, God? That was the first question that popped into my mind on one of the several ICU visits I had with my own son. And sitting in the ICU, I remember the first evening that I spent some time there looking around at children with bald heads from chemotherapy. Where are you, God? Where are you, God, might be the first question that came into your mind as we descended into the madness of the pandemic in 2020. Where are you, God? Now, sometimes Christians have offered well-intended but shallow and trite answers to people's sincere questions and the problems that they have with the evil and suffering in the world. These answers... Many Christians often are well-intended efforts at rejecting that post-Christian story, the post-Christian story that says it's just chaos, mindless matter behind it all. So it's well-intended, but oftentimes our trite Christian answers can leave people feeling as if the evil and suffering of the world is actually all on their shoulders, and they feel this unbearable sense of guilt and shame and responsibility for the suffering that they've experienced, the suffering they see in the world. Now, on the surface, it may be easy to point to a moral evil like September 11th and say, well, 
You know, evil and suffering exist because of the misused free will of human beings. And so it seems like that you could make an obvious, real clear connection. You click something like September 11th and say, say, it's easy. It's easy why that kind of evil and suffering happens. It's because the terrorist hijackers misused their free will. And yes, there's a degree, there's obviously truth to that. But then people that might be uh, like, like me ever since I was a kid have this problem where I like to ask the challenging follow-up question. You can ask my parents on that one. And the challenging follow-up question was, okay, well, why is that even a possibility for them? And, and Christians might say, well, they might connect the, the, the misused free will of terrorist hijackers and trace it all the way back to the misused free will of Adam in the garden. And they say, see, there's evil and suffering because sin entered the world because Adam misused his will. So it is. It's all human fault. But then, like that challenging follow-up question that might enter your mind is, okay, yeah, but why was there a deceiving talking serpent in the garden to begin with? And why was there a knowledge, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Doesn't that presume that evil's already a thing? And so then Christians throughout history have gone, well, yeah, well, there was a fall of, a fall of angels and principalities and powers, a fall of Satan before that. And then you're still left with these challenging questions. And maybe you've never thought of these before. I'm not trying to dissuade you in your faith, but I'm wanting you to think about the challenges that many people who are Christians, left Christianity, or have never come to the Christian story at all are dealing with. And they go, yeah, but who tempted the tempter? These are challenging questions. And when we look around at the natural evils of the world, like tsunamis, cancer, pandemics, it can be a lot harder to make a clear correlation between some individual person's sin or even human sin and the cause of a tsunami. Whose sin causes that? Now, Christians have always affirmed that for some reason, God willfully designed this kind of world, a world with the possibility for pain and suffering, the possibility for these things. But he still deemed it as good, still thought that this kind of world was good. When we're still left with that question of, God, why did you make this kind of world, though? And that's a valid question. Because sometimes we look around the world and it does look like chaos rules and reigns. And other times when we hear Christians talk about this sort of stuff, it seems like all the brokenness of the world is some person's fault. Now, again, we can't go through all the possible historic answers Christians have given to the problem of evil and suffering this morning, but today what I do want to do is I want to suggest one possible answer, and I want to dispel some commonly believed lies that we may be tempted to believe when we experience the what we all experience, it's unavoidable. You will at some point come across unexplained, difficult to explain suffering and evil in life. And so what I want to do today is I want to use the wisdom book, the book of Job, as our biblical guide today because it's probably the number one book that Christians have historically gone to when they face questions about why is there evil, unjust suffering. Now my first recollection 
with the book of Job and wrestling with the book of Job came as a young boy. Now, some of you might not know this about my own story. I grew up in a church context that believed that Jesus' death on the cross not only paid the price for human sin, but it also we also believed growing up that Jesus' death on the cross paid for people's physical healing as well. And if we only had enough faith, we could access the healing that Jesus had paid for. Now, this tradition, we called it in our own circles, we called it the the word of faith movement, but oftentimes people outside of those circles called it the prosperity gospel movement. That was the context that I was raised into. And so when our pastor's sister, a church about this size, when she was diagnosed with cancer, everybody in the church, and I remember this as a boy, through all the faith that they could to trying to access what we believed was her legal right in Christ. And so we would have prayer meetings, but these prayer meetings, and I know this is going to be so weird to some of you, maybe some of you also spent time in these contexts too. We went to prayer meetings where we were given, uh, like, they weren't prayers to pray, they were like confession scripts of faith. So I remember as a boy going to a prayer meeting, and here are all the faith affirmations that we need to speak out over this woman. And honestly, as a kid, like a lot of this made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to people in our church community, especially when you see televangelists. You know, I grew up watching Kenneth Copeland and Oral Roberts, and I went to multiple Benny Hinn crusades. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, others do. I went to that stuff. And, you know, some of this makes some sense when you saw these oftentimes miraculous healings happened. But the challenge occurred when her condition didn't improve, and it actually steadily got worse. The medical attention of the hospital intensified, and so our family actually had her son come and stay with us in the final days of her life. He was staying at our house while her dad, or his dad, was going to the hospital. And I will never forget the moment when my parents pulled me aside. I was probably only 10 years old or something like that. Pulled me aside, and they told me that, uh, that she had passed And that Derek, that was the name of the boy who was staying with us, Derek's dad, who's going to be coming over now to tell Derek the news that no boy should ever have to hear. And I'll never forget the scene. We we had a small, you know, blue-collar house in one of the blue-collar suburbs of Detroit. And I'll I'll never forget the scene because I was sitting on the sofa in what was our living room, which was about four steps from our front door. And Derek's dad came in, Dean, and Dean was six foot four, strong man, came walking in, grabbed Derek by the hand, and walked him to our bedroom to tell the news to him. They closed the door. I don't remember there being any crying. I just remember the silence, and I remember the question entering my mind, even as a boy, where are you, God? They came out. I don't remember there being any tears, just silence. My, My parents gave them a hug. They got in the car and drove off. What I do remember even more is in the weeks that followed, I was listening to the way parents would talk in the foyer after service, and I heard them grappling with, well, what happened? Why wasn't she healed? And I heard them grappling with the book of Job. I heard them wrestling with, well, this is what happens in the book of Job. And so this is giving us an understanding of the situation. And in our context, some thought that the book of Job was about how Job's fears and lack of faith brought these calamities on Job. 
And I've heard people say, well, maybe she didn't just have enough faith to be healed. I heard even some adults talk about how this is what happens when you're in fear and you're not in faith. And that seemed terrifying to me. My secret fears could bring about my fears? I mean, this, is, this sounds like a nightmare. How can I not be afraid if my secret fears might bring about this sort of thing? It was a devastating thought. Now, it didn't cause me to leave my faith, but when I got into my early adult years, I experienced a, a, a string of more suffering that was difficult to explain. And I got exposed to other Christians who had different ways of understanding the book of Job. Some of them honestly didn't seem much better, but I was open to listening to them. Some thought that the book of Job was about a God who smites and shows favor to who he wants, and it's your job to figure out the moral lesson that God's trying to teach you in it and not question him. Some of them talked about God and his glory as if God was some sort of like medieval king. And what God needed was his glory, as if you were some peasant and he had a deficit of gold. And bringing him glory was like you bringing him his gold that he needed. Now, if you get smitten for some reason, get diagnosed with some horrible, incurable disease, maybe you've sinned and God is trying to teach you a lesson for his glory. And honestly, I didn't really feel like that was much better of an explanation than what I was hearing as a kid growing up. To some it was. Either way, it seemed like the message that I heard from both sides of Christians was if, even if you don't understand evil and suffering, people always get what they deserve. Either it's from lack of faith, for some sin, or some punishment, or some moral lesson that God, God is trying to teach you. And so maybe that is a slightly better story than the one that we hear modern, post-Christian culture tell us about a world that's just chaotic. But I think, there, and I have seen this over the course of my life, the crushing weight that that places on people's faith that fills them with nothing but shame and secret contempt for God when they think the weight of all of this is on their shoulders. Now, what I've come to believe now with the help of what I, I truly believe are better guides, better biblical guides, is that both of these perspectives miss the point. And so to better understand the book of Job together, um, I want to invite you to, you can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Job 1. We're going to do kind of a basic recap of what the story of Job is about in case you've never heard the story of Job, or maybe you've heard it and it was years ago, or maybe you heard it and it was told to you one of those two ways. I highly recommend, and I've also put this in the bulletin, there's a great book, How to Read Job, by a couple of great evangelical scholars, Old Testament scholars, Tremper Longman III and John Walton. I highly recommend checking out that book if you want to do a deeper dive into the book of Job. But let's do a little basic recap. And... Um, then we'll explore Job in its ancient context so that we can have a better understanding, I think, of what that story was really trying to, be, uh, trying to say to the original audience. So here's a little recap. This is a vast oversimplification of the story. The story begins where the reader is introduced to someone that an ancient audience would have considered the most righteous person you could imagine, a man named Job. Then there's this challenge in what we might call like a heavenly staff meeting 
where a challenge is brought to God by someone called the challenger, Hasatan in Hebrew. Your, the English translation of your Bible will say Satan, but I would tell you most Old Testament scholars would say, that's not the same Satan as the New Testament. This is a challenging angel. It seems to be his job in staff meetings to bring this up. There's always one in a staff meeting, right? Is it me, Pastor Joel? Hopefully I'm not the challenger, right? <laughs> Next, God okays a challenge to Job's faith in the story, and then Job gets hit with a series of almost absurd tragedies. Like, read through Job 1, and then you see, while the servant was still speaking, another thing happened. They are like, picture the worst things that could happen to the most righteous person. Next, Job grieves and mourns. Then Job's friends come to explain why this has happened to him. Then God shows up on the scene and speaks to Job and his friends, and God explicitly tells the friends, all of your explanations are wrong. And then finally, the story concludes with Job being blessed, and there's a vindication of his righteousness. Now, Israel's neighbors had their own ways of thinking about their gods when disaster struck. Most of Israel's surrounding culture believed that humanity had been made for the gods. And so your job was to figure out what the gods needed Perform your duty, and the gods would bless you. The gods might need food offerings, drink offerings. They might need a house, like a temple to live in. You do your job, life's going to turn out pretty good for you. This is what Walton and Longman call the great symbiosis, or the retribution principle, but I'd like to use a different term. Granted, I'm borrowing it from a different religious context, but it's kind of a common colloquial word we all know today. And we can call this karma. The ancient world believed that the world ran on karma. And if you didn't know any better, as you look through the Old Testament, it might seem like on the surface that some of the Old Testament is telling you that the world runs on karma, but Job is here to correct that story. You might look at a book like Proverbs, for example, and you could see how Proverbs celebrates this retribution principle. You might see something like, if you do X, then Y will happen, right? That's much of what the wisdom of Proverbs is. But what happens if when you do X, and instead of getting Y, your livestock gets raided by bandits and your children die? That's the question that the book of Job is exploring. Now, the key to understanding any book of the Bible is to understand the genre. And the genre of the book of Job is kind of a weird genre. We don't do a lot of these today. Um, and this is called a wisdom book featuring a pious sufferer. The book of Job is not unique. If you looked at all of Israel's neighbors, you'd see many of the neighboring peoples had these kinds of stories. It's a genre of literature. It's a story about a righteous person who suffers and the different cultures try to explain why they're suffering. Now, there are unique features about this particularly, particularly inspired story that differentiate it from the surrounding cultural context of Israel and its neighbors and so this might fit a common literary genre of its day, but the answers it provides goes far beyond what the pagans were teaching. This genre of writing functions more like an ancient thought experiment, and that's really important. You don't necessarily need to read Job like you're reading like First Kings, which is a book of history. This is like an ancient thought experiment. So you can kind of think of like, maybe some of you took a philosophy class at some point in high school or college, and you can think of the philosophy professor that's like, here's the, the trolley car thought experiment. 
You know, here's the thought experiment. You're a trolley car conductor, and you have to decide on two sets of tracks. One has a group of nuns pinned to the track, and the other one has a single child. Which way do you divert the train? You know, those kinds of thought experiments. It's not like there's a, necessarily a historical situation where that's happening. The point is to get you to think using the circumstances. And so we don't need to get wrapped up on, well, are there really heavenly staff meetings where this sort of stuff happens? That's not the point of this genre. It's much more like a parable that Jesus uses in the New Testament. So the purpose of this specific thought experiment is to get the ancient audience to think about what the most righteous person they can imagine, them enduring the worst tragedies you could imagine, and then thinking about where is God in this? Job 1. Let's look at verse, just to see this challenge here, we're going to look at verse 8 through 11. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand. And strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. In the opening scene of this inspired thought experiment, the challenger, or Hasatan, shows up to the staff meeting, and he brings up two charges against God and the way he governs the universe. First, is it really a good policy to have righteous people blessed for their righteousness, God? Doesn't that give people a selfish ulterior motive for being righteous? Thereby undercutting righteousness altogether. And then his second challenge... And yet, God, if righteous people suffer all the time, that also seems like a really bad policy on your part. After all, why be righteous if your life still ends up terrible? It's quite the catch-22 that the challenger provokes. The point here, again, isn't that this is like an actual angelic staff meeting or that God invites people in to tell them things and then you get turned over to him. That's not the point. The point is that these provocations are actually giving voice to Israel's questions about how God governs the world. And as I mentioned before, Israel's neighbors all thought their gods, that their gods were petty. Their gods were petty in their grievances. If you didn't bring enough drink offering to the temple, well, guess what? You might be in trouble. If you didn't take care of the gods' needs, well, the gods might, might have some bad news in store for you. If you did something to upset the gods among Israel's neighbors, you could expect to some, have some kind of evil befall you, either directly through those gods doing something to you to teach you a lesson, or sometimes the gods just might leave you alone. Because in the ancient world, among Israel's neighbors, chaos was primordial. That means there is an element of chaos even before the gods existed. So sometimes all the gods might have to do is just leave you alone to let chaos have their way. This had nothing to do, this entire system with Israel's neighbors had nothing to do with the gods being just. It was just that these gods had mercurial temperaments and they just wanted to be taken care of. They had needs just like humans. They were just more powerful. So Israel is wondering here, oh God, maybe God is like that too. Like we experience suffering. We experience tragedy. Is our God like our neighbor's gods too? And you can see as you comb through the Old Testament, sometimes you can see how Israel might be confused. On the surface, sometimes it looks like something like karma is happening in the Bible. But if you look at the totality of the Bible, including wisdom books like Job 
and wisdom books like Ecclesiastes, which we often don't want to look at because they're confusing, we can start to see that the story is much more complex. Certainly, you have Psalms and Proverbs that seem to say, you do this, you get blessed. Don't do this, and you might get cursed. Over and over again, you see this idea, the righteous are going to be blessed. And Job doesn't throw that out. Ecclesiastes doesn't throw that out. But you have to understand that these sayings from like Proverbs, these are generalized truths that reveal the normal pattern. Another way of saying it is that it is statistically more likely that if you follow the wisdom of Proverbs that things are going to work out better for you than if you don't. Statistically, play the odds, right? If you have to choose to live your life a particular way, yeah, do your Proverbs a day. It's wisdom. What happens though, and this is what Israel's wrestling with, what happens if and when we follow the covenant God, when we do our daily Proverbs, we live wisely and some tragedy still does happen. Just because it's statistically true that this is the best way to live doesn't make it universally true all the time. Now, what we see with Job's friends is that each of them argues in their own unique ways that karma runs the world, and that in some sense, even God answers to karma. Job's friends represent the different answers that Israel's neighbors would give to problems about evil and suffering and where God is in the midst of it. All of them give Job different variations of Job, you did something wrong, and people always get what they deserve. Read through their responses. But then, in Job 42, God shows up in the whirlwind and tells all of Job's friends, you're all wrong. So let's look at this, just to affirm this. Job 42. So remember, all of Job's friends are telling him in their own unique ways, karma runs the world, you did it, there's something, even if you can't see it, Job, there was something you must have done wrong to bring this on your life. Job 42, let's just look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, then he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Job's friends were wrong. So it's in this lengthy discourse that God gives with Job that we learn how Israel's God is different from the pagan gods and how the people of God might need to reconsider their beliefs about suffering and evil in light of this true revelation. What I want to offer you today are three truths from the book of Job about God, evil, and suffering that I believe can correct some of our common misconceptions. Truth number one, chaos doesn't run the world, God does. This challenges, this truth challenges the post-Christian story that has become part of the norm of our culture. Chaos doesn't run the world. Now, in an ancient context, the ancient Near Eastern peoples thought that chaos was this primordial force, even before or beyond God. Most of Israel's neighbors believed that chaos, suffering, and evil were woven into the very fabric of the cosmos, and even the gods were subject to them. Evil existed outside of the jurisdiction of the gods. Job shows that this is not the case. There are no forces beyond God's jurisdiction. Chaos is not beyond God. 
Many of Israel's neighbors also had these creation myths. And some of their creation myths included violent struggle between their creator God and some sort of force of chaos, some personification of chaos or non-order. Some of these chaos monsters were, maybe our best cultural example is you could compare them to like Godzilla, right? Some of them described creatures that the ancient peoples called Leviathan and Behemoth, and these were creatures of the sea, and especially for Israel and some of the other Semitic peoples who were not seafaring, the sea represented chaos, and coming up out of the sea were these dragon-like monsters. I mean, it's straight up Godzilla, right? And when you think about Godzilla and you go, well, is Godzilla a good guy or a bad guy? Well, If you're a city planner, he's a bad guy, right? You know, if the three-headed monster shows up and he seems scarier than Godzilla's. So he's a, the Leviathan is a symbol of non-order, just like Godzilla might be. And so when God addresses Job, he reminds them, and specifically names, those two ancient sea monsters and beasts, Leviathan and Behemoth. And he tells them, Job, Leviathan is not a threat to me. Leviathan's scary to you, Job. You can't put a hook in its nose and wrangle it. But he's not a threat to me. There are forces of chaos and non-order in God's world that, yes, may seem scary to us, but we are reassured. I want you to be reassured, Job. They are not beyond my dominion. The second truth, karma doesn't run the world. God does. This story challenges our bad religious stories. So if chaos doesn't run the world challenges our post-West story, learning that karma doesn't run the world challenges some of our bad religious stories. While the retribution principle or something that looks like karma is often generally true, you eat well, you exercise, you're probably going to be more likely than not healthy, it doesn't make it, make it the case every single time. It's not a universal law that's in application in every single instance, in every single situation. God's just governance of the cosmos includes general norms for wise behavior that can look like karma, but make no mistake about it, karma does not run the world. God does. What if, what if the world was run by karma instead of God? What if everyone got what they deserved. Is that really the kind of world we want to live in? Where there is no room for grace or mercy? Perhaps, let me pose to you, perhaps the cost of designing a creation with room for the possibility of grace, mercy, and the forgiveness of sins is that righteous people like Job don't always get what they deserve in that moment. And that leads us to the third Truth, Job teaches us, people don't always reap what they sow. People do not always get what they deserve. And you don't really want them to. Not all suffering can be linked to someone's sin or their lack of faith. It's a lie. And it fills people with such a burden of shame Yes, in many cases, we can discern causal patterns between what actions produce pleasure and what actions produce pain and suffering. If you smoke five packs of cigarettes a day for the next several decades, there's a chance, a very good chance, you're going to end up with lung cancer. And that's not mysterious. 
But the book of Job demonstrates that it's not universally true that a clear, discernible, causal connection can be made between an action and a reaction. Understanding that karma does not run the universe is essential to building a biblically informed understanding of evil and suffering. God has seemingly structured reality in such a way that people do not often and always get what they deserve. And I believe we can see in the biblical narrative that God chose to create a reality where there is a degree of will or potentiality that we are free to wield for creative or for destructive purposes. God is the primary cause of all things, causing all that exists to exist. He is holding and sustaining this very moment. But there's been a long Christian tradition that is differentiated between saying, yes, as Pastor Joel talked about last week, God is the first cause and he is the sustainer of all things. That means he's the primary cause. And yet we can distinguish. You can go back to Aquinas. We can distinguish between that and saying that God is the direct cause of this particular instance of evil or suffering as a secondary cause. We don't need to think that God eliminated the free will of the Saudi hijackers that did 9-11. That's not what we have to affirm. But what we can say is, yes, God chose to make this kind of world which included the possibility that, yes, terrible stuff like that can happen. But why, God, why would you choose to make this kind of world? Because I believe that God chose to design a kind of world where the possibility for grace, mercy, and forgiveness were, were there for all of us. But in order for that to happen, we couldn't have this rigid karma, this rigid karmic structure that would eliminate the possibility of grace and forgiveness. God also needed to allow for the possibility, yes, the very real possibility that in this world, good people will not always get what they deserve. The possibility of mercy for one might include the possibility of unjust suffering for another. And we don't really want, I know it's hard we're in the midst of some instance of evil and suffering, but we really don't want a world where everybody gets what they deserve. Do we? If your answer is no, and we don't want a world devoid of grace and mercy, then we might have to see that as one of the side effects. But we can take heart that even in those instances of unjust suffering, those do not continue on forever without a final setting right of all things. When I was 19 years old, my former youth pastor died of cancer in his early 50s. Um, he, he was a great man. He was faithful to his wife, raised two wonderful daughters, volunteered as our youth pastor, wasn't even paid volunteered as a youth pastor, and his full-time day job was working with special needs kids. He never drank or smoked. He got up early every single morning before the crack of dawn to go exercise, to keep himself in shape. I'd say when you look at this guy's life, he did Proverbs pretty well. Getting incurable cancer and dying was not getting what he deserved. And I know there's some on one version of the story that say, you know, this like hyper total depravity view, which is like, hey, we're all sinners deserving of death. To which I would just say, look at, look at Job's friends' responses and see how God responded to them. Sitting beside him in hospice, seeing the, the shell of what remained of him, which was barely unrecognizable, 
I wondered how such a fate could befall such a righteous man. Instead of some like violent cartel leader or, or child brothel owner, why not them? God. But what if in some sense my youth pastor was participating in the unjust sufferings of Christ? What if a world of grace and forgiveness, a world where bad people don't always get what they deserve, can't exist if all the righteous get what they deserve? Maybe sometimes that cup of unjust suffering just cannot pass from the righteous. Now, when I attempt to listen to the distinct notes of the book of Job inside the wider chorus of Scripture, I wonder what I can learn. And I see, as I look, and I set Job, and I see this righteous man unjustly suffering, and I see the very linchpin of our faith resting on the fact that the cup of unjust suffering did not pass the only perfect righteous one, Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross unequivocally demonstrates that karma doesn't run the world. As the righteous Son of God suffers upon the cross, he prays for forgiveness for the very ones murdering him. Mercy is possible because God made a world where not everyone gets what they deserve, including the righteous. Hear me out. Again, I'm not saying that all kinds of suffering are participating in Christ's suffering. First Peter 4, for example, Peter says, hey, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's undoubtedly suffering that we inflict upon ourselves because of our own stupidity. There's no doubt about that. In Luke 13, there's also instances where we see, like in Luke 13, for example, Jesus heals a woman who he explicitly says has been bound by Satan for 18 long years. And I have seen with my own eyes miraculous instances of healing. I've seen deaf ears opened immediately. I've got wild stories I can tell you all. And so, yes, there are instances where people's suffering is immediately alleviated and, re and removed as a miraculous act of God, as agents of Christ's renewal act in the world to bring renewal and redemption. But there are also times, as we see like in the book of Job and ultimately on the cross of Christ, where not all the suffering is the result of the lack of wisdom, some particular person's sin, and it doesn't immediately vanish with the most fervent and righteous of prayers. If karma ran the world, there would be no cross. And if chaos ran the world, the cross would be the final word. But for those who unjustly suffer, for those of you who are walking through moments, maybe with family, friends, who are experiencing difficult to explain suffering or evil, I do wanna offer you some hope that chaos doesn't run the world. Those who unjustly suffer, those who are victims of evil, those who experience natural evils that seem so random and chaotic can also hope in the resurrection. Karma is not king, but God is just. And he promises to vindicate the righteous on the last day. This is why we have a living hope. Jesus wasn't left to the cross. He wasn't left to the grave. He was raised to life. And this is the hope that we have. But even with that, this does not, this does not silence our grief when suffering happens. It doesn't silence lament. 
So what I want to do now is in your bulletin, and there are pens in your uh, pew in front of you, I want to offer space for lament. Because as you notice, God came and he corrected all of Job's friends, told them they were all wrong. But he said, in all these things that Job has said, he hasn't sinned. But I want you to listen. Listen here to one of the things Job says in lament that, that God specifically says Job did not sin on. I cried for you to help, for help and you did not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. It is important that as you experience grief, loss, and suffering, that you give voice to that to God. God does not require of you to silence your questions, to silence even your anger. It is okay to experience those emotions. So now what we're gonna do now is we're gonna take some time and we are going to take some time to lament. And I wanna encourage you, maybe there's things that you've kind of been storing up over the years that you just need to like write down and get off your chest to God. You can act like Job in this way and you're not doing something wrong. It is good to wrestle with God. God gave Israel, the very people that he named, Israel, the people of God, means one who wrestles with God. To be people of God mean that we wrestle with God. And so now I want to invite you into a time of writing down laments and questions.